Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. And with me today is Percy Howard. Percy is the president and the CEO of California Institute for Behavioral Health Solutions, a behavioral health consultancy for systems, organizations, and providers who desire to improve outcomes for people with mental health and substance use challenges. Percy is responsible for quality improvement, project construction, executive leadership, and all performance-related aspects of the program's body of business and project portfolios. Percy, it's so nice to have you here today. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you, Graham. I, I truly appreciate it. It's nice to have this opportunity, you know, to talk about the work that uh, that we love. I'm excited about jumping into that. Before we do, maybe could we could just uh, allow our listeners to learn a little bit about you, your background in mental health, and what brought you into this role as both president and CEO of CIBHS? Sure. I've been working in the, let's just call it the people-serving professions for yeah. now about 35 years. I'm originally from Long Island, went to college in Arkansas, which was a huge culture shock for me. And due to my ex-wife living in California, migrated out to California in about 1982, you know, at which time I uh, completed a, a master's program at uh, California State University, Sacramento. Wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do, but I did know that, you know, I wanted to be in social work in some capacity. There's a story of my migrating from social work and social services into behavioral health. And I'll I'll give you a little bit of that history. When I graduated with the master's from Sac State, that's what we call it locally here, you know, CSUS Sacramento, Sac State, you know, I needed a job. So I took a job at Big Brothers and Big Sisters of the greater Sacramento area which was a fantastic job for, for several different reasons. Number one, I loved working with the kids. I love the concept of especially working with boys who really didn't have that sort of fatherly presence in their life to be able to match them with a caring adult, you know, that was able to provide some of that nurturing and interaction, you know, that was missing in their lives. So that job was a very gentle way to sort of segue into the people, you know, serving fields because Yes, you know, of course, a lot of the families who brought their kids in to be matched were suffering from trauma, you know, trauma and abuse and poverty and, you know, all of the social determinants and the, you know, the the direct impacts of living in a culture to where not everybody has everything that they need. But it was a friendly way, you know, to be able to engage with these families. So I did that work for about three years. I started off as a case manager there and then subsequently became the program manager. And around six or eight months into me being a program manager there, this county of Sacramento was recruiting for social workers. So like it often is, you know, government plays a lot more than CBOs, you know, than community-based organizations do. And, you know, I was 20, I think I was about 24, 25 years old and, you know, kind of struggling to make ends meet. So, you know, decided, hey, let's go work for the county. So my first government job, you know, working in social services was as a family reunification worker in Sacramento County, Department of Health and Human Services. And that job was massive eye-opener to the incredible levels of difficulties that many families face in our society today. 
you know, the, the focus of family reunification social workers is to reunify children with families that they've been removed out of. So it's really restorative work. And one of the things that I learned from that job was to deeply embrace that whole principle of trying to bring restoration into the work, restoration into whatever work we're doing in the social services, restoration into whatever work we're doing in behavioral health, that, you know, that people are capable of pretty profound changes. We spend a lot of time, you know, talking about damage and trauma and difficulty. But one of the things that that job showed me was that people have amazing capacities for healing and transformation in their lives. And that is largely due to the efforts, the skills, the talents, the resources that they often bring to the table, not always what we do. So, you know, it's, it's a combination of those two things. But at any rate, you know, I did that work for several years. I worked for the county for about 14 years. I moved up through the system, you know, became a supervisor. And the work is difficult, you know. The work is very difficult. And then I had a hard time seeing how I would, you know, persist to do that for 35 years. You know, some people get in there and they latch on and they're going to make it to retirement. And I started to have an increasing interest in behavioral health. So I started applying for jobs, you know, in behavioral health field at an MSW but I was not licensed. But my transitional job was working for Child and Family Institute in Sacramento because a good friend of mine, Sandra Baker, was the executive director there. And she was like, you want to make a career change? Just come on over here, you know, get your license, get your hours and do something different. So I did, you know, make that change. It was a profound cut in pay, but, you know, we don't do the stuff that we're doing for money, you know, at the end of the day. It was a profound cut in pay and I was working with children who'd been sexually abused. So the day-to-day -day difficulty of that job was intense, okay? But I did that for a few years, and then I ended up getting about two-thirds of the clinical hours that I needed for my LCSW in that job. But then I went to work for Dignity Health in a juvenile justice treatment program. And I have to say that as far as the day-to-day, -day, everyday engagement with clients, in this case, it was juvenile offenders, and just the day-to-day -day workings of the job, that was my favorite job you know, to, you know, to this day. It was fantastic working with those kids. One of the reasons that I loved it so much is that there was a large proportion of the offenders you know, who were in this day treatment program were African-American males. And so I had the opportunity to be able to engage with these kids, with these boys, you know, in a way that they often did not have to be able to engage with their own fathers. I, I can't tell you how many kids that I sat with in therapy rooms over the course of the time I was doing that job that just said, hey, Mr. Percy, can't you just be my dad? Why can't you just be my dad? Okay. That sums it up, you know, right there. That sums it up. And it also sums up the willingness to which these kids had to be able to engage in loving relationships and how capable and flexible and fluid they were, you know, and being able to learn, you know, pro-social skills and competencies you know, that could take them in a different place in life than they might have. I still meet kids that I had in that program today, you know, like I'll be at Safeway and, you know, some, you know, 40 year old guy, you know, 38 year old guy will be like, Mr. Percy, how you doing? Let me tell you my story. You know, how, you know, they, let me, let me let you know how I'm doing. So that job was profoundly satisfying. I moved from there to uh, Stanford Youth Solutions here in Sacramento, running a similar type of program. 
but as a director. So, you know, from that, that was sort of the line of demarcation of me moving more into social services and behavioral health administration, you know, versus direct services. So when I was at Stanford Youth Solutions, I ran a program called the Community Protection and Treatment Program, which is very similar to the program that I had left. I was just managing it. And that program thrived for about three years. And then the funding source for the program was eliminated. So me and all of my staff, we were sort of on the chopping block if we couldn't figure something out. So we did figure some things for the other staff to do, but I made the suggestion because at that time I'd become licensed that in, you know, in order to be able to continue to provide value to Stanford Youth Solutions, then I'd become the clinical supervisor for all of the trainees. Okay. So I had about 22 supervisees, which is a huge burden of supervisees, but I loved it. It was great. You know, I, I enjoy coaching. I enjoy mentoring. I enjoy teaching. You know, I enjoy entering into a collaborative learning process with other people. And so clinical supervision was good for that. But in the interim, while I was doing that job, I started to get recruited by California Institute for Behavioral Health Solutions, which is the company that I'm the CEO for now. And that was in about 2008. I ended up getting recruited by Bill Carter, who was then basically the uh, COO of the organization, because he saw some presentations that I did on, on some evidence-based practices at a few conferences. I did a presentation, one conference on aggression replacement training, and another one, I think, on functional family therapy. So after one of those presentations, he approached me and said, hey, we would really love to have you to come to CIBHS. At that time, it wasn't CIBHS. It was CIMH, which is California Institute for Mental Health. And he said, but we don't have a job for you. So can we kind of bring you on slowly by giving you some consulting gigs? I, you know, I agreed to that. After about a year, 18 months, they were able to bring me on and they brought me on to run a treatment planning initiative called Transformational Care Planning. And that was the beginning of my tenure at CIBHS. So I know that's a little bit circuitous, but that's the story about how I've arrived at where I am. And I can tell you more about that work as we get into it. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that work. I just want to highlight, though, you know, it's fun to, to discover with folks how they got into this field, why the different paths that they taught. Clearly, you know, wherever, wherever you get planted, you know, you grow and you bloom, you know, and it sounds like what's, what's really cool, some of the things I want to highlight, too, is being able to have an eye for the culture of this work and to find out that everyone does not have everything that they need. Yeah. To make some of the mental health changes or transitions or transformations right. that are possible. I, I interviewed recently um, Dr. Bill Parham. He works with the National Basketball Players Association, and they provide the mental health services for the NBA. And he was talking about something very similar you're talking about, how we have this survival genius. People have this potential for resilience and for growth, but sometimes they just need the mm -hmm. right cultivated opportunities and relationships like you're describing here. Right. For that genius to be discovered and for those transformations to happen and for that growth right. to occur. And I love what you're saying as well. And I think oftentimes as clinicians, we forget this part of it, the role of the therapist being so transformative, you know, that transferential piece that folks come in with. And, and, and the research shows we know that we just kind of need a good enough other <laughs> in our lives, you know, to help mm -hmm. us kind of be grounded enough in attachment to be able to right. reach the growth that we have the potential for. And it sounds like you've done that in spades. What a, what a great set of career positions you've had now to come into uh, CIBHS. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, you're talking about that, you know, that role of the therapist. And I mean, 
you know, for the last 30, 35 years, the research has borne out consistently yeah. that the quality of the therapeutic relationship is, you know, one of the single most profound and driving factors for success for people when they're working with professionals. That's right. You know, I mean, you, you could take any evidence-based or community-defined practice and look at the techniques, strategies, skills, et cetera, but still it boils down to how well are you able to connect with people? How genuinely are you able to connect with them? And how well are you able to demonstrate that you understand, you know, who they are, what drives them and what they're capable of? I mean, those, those are the things that, you know, that persist. Yeah. So I'm glad that we're talking about that. And, you know, looking at the challenges, it's that, you know, we, 25 years ago, we didn't talk about social determinants of health. You know, now we've given it a name. You know, we just talked about, you know, the environmental factors that inhibited people's success. You know, it's, it's sad that the list of social determinants, you know, seems to keep growing and growing and growing and growing, you know, that can impact people negatively, but you know, that's part of the work too. It's not just what happens in the therapeutic rooms. It's what happens in communities. Let's talk about that piece of it. I know that you folks as a consultancy at CIBHS are looking to come alongside different systems, organizations. Talk about kind of what your mission is and how you see coming into lives of some of the folks out there practicing with folks who really need some help. Yeah. Our mission in a nutshell is to work alongside communities, partnering with communities, community organizations, and governmental entities to help improve the conditions in those communities to the degree that the mental health of individuals in that communities is improved. So to that degree, you know, we're not just focused on clinical work. You can't be and be able to satisfy that mission. While we are focused on clinical work, I mean, part of what we do is we we stand up and we implement a range of evidence-based practices, aggression replacement training, trauma-focused CBT, feedback-informed treatment, the strengths model of case management. You know, all of these are practices of which we support, which are strategies, skills, and tools to be able to help communities. But on the other hand, we also work alongside with communities to improve the amount of racial equity that's involved in their engagement with government services. You know, to be able to work with communities and governmental entities to do conjoint strategic planning around how to improve the mental health in communities. We have a large contract with Alameda County Department of Health and Human Services to do that. We have a close working relationship with California Healthcare Foundation that is right now we're involved in a large multi-year project with them to improve the quality of telehealth services to individuals. And again, all of that work is filtered through a lens of increasing health and racial equity for, you know, underserved populations, for underserved communities, for communities that wouldn't necessarily get that type of care and attention and support. So really the mission of CIBHS is to do, you know, two things. It's to improve the quality of clinical services and not just evidence-based practices, but community-defined practices increasingly. Practices that are created in communities, focused on the needs of certain racial and ethnic populations, and are being supported to have the type of evidence and to be optimized in such a way that they can eventually build Medi-Cal and they can have the same sort of cachet and impact and support that any other practice does, a developer-driven practice. So these are things that we're doing on one hand, but we're also working you know, at the systems level. 
you know, at the policy level, we have close relationship with the California Behavioral Health Directors Association. CBHDA is the association for all of the county behavioral health departments in California. CIBHS has a long-standing history of working, you know, very close alongside of them to be able to help them implement some of their larger policy initiatives. So, you know, without those two things working hand in hand, it's very difficult to effect and sustain real change. Versus you're talking about these community-defined needs and using that to kind of determine where you can enter and be of most help. You're also talking about this, you know, the social determinants as well as some of the particular challenges that you might help folks really focus in on. I know there's opioid epidemic. I know there's equity things you brought back up. What are some of the specific challenges that you're helping folks identify or you're being called in on to provide some of the support and consultancy services you guys allow? Yeah. One of the large projects that we're working on, which is really entwined with the impact and social determinants, is the youth opioid response project that we're partnering with Associates for Human Potential to stand up in California. It's a large SAMHSA grant that is focused on making sure that youth, and we're talking about youth here, we're talking about truly youth, teenagers, all the way on up through transitional age youth, you know, 25, 26-year-olds, be able to receive the care and the community supports, et cetera, you know, to be able to avoid addiction more than anything. Yes. Because, you know, the, the youth population is not the largest population that is impacted by opioid addiction. You know, but that preventative work in communities is really important. So this particular project is focused on shoring up the business capabilities, the clinical capabilities, and the collaborative capabilities of a set of community-based organizations. So they are grantees, you know, for funding, you know, to be able to, you know, help increase their capabilities with the populations they work with in their community as far as you know, opioid addiction is concerned. And we provide a lot of the business management of the project, coaching, collaborative evaluation with communities, you know, et cetera. So it's a multi-year project and actually we're coming to the end of the three-year cycle right now. And it looks like the Department of Healthcare Services is going to, you know, continue to be working with us. We'll keep our fingers crossed to make sure nice. that, you know, that, you know, hopefully that happens. But that is a, that's a big project that has a lot of social determinants work involved in it. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Continuing education is both a requirement and a learning opportunity, but finding the right CE provider can be challenging. AATBS, a triad company, offers continuing education for psychologists, social workers, marriage and family therapists, counselors, and behavior analysts. CE courses are available both individually and as part of our new All Access Pass. All Access Pass provides a library of over 250 unique courses. That's more than 800 hours of CEs, with new courses being added every month. As a special offer, Behavioral Health Today listeners can save 15% on CE purchases. Visit us at aatbs.com bht and enter promo code bht15 during checkout. That's aatbs.com bht. Check out our library and check off your CE requirements today. I was going to ask, as you talking about that, maybe kind of dovetailing a little bit with just a culture within determining our needs around this idea that not everyone has everything that they need. Going into the kind of the more equity focused 
attention being given to what folks are needing and what they're having access to. Mm -hmm. Help understand how you bring an awareness to that part of it, the equity piece. Yeah, it's not always an easy thing to do, but data and evaluation is real important to us at CIBHS. Numbers are important, okay? So when we look at disparities, because when we talk about social determinants, you know, we want to talk about disparities. So even if you look, you look in large urban communities, you know, African-Americans are very much more likely to die, you know, of comorbid conditions, diabetes, and, you know, coupled with profound depression. The numbers don't lie. You know, I mean, the data is there that show Black people are dying earlier, you know, with more distress, even in similar situations. So, you know, we, we look at these disparities and those are the things that we take not to hit people over the head with them, with the disparities bad, but to be able to appeal to the logic of yeah. putting time, effort, and energy into communities with preventative services. But not only that, with ongoing services that resonate with their needs, their culture, okay, and their own ethos that exists in these communities. And so that's where a lot of the community-defined practice work comes in, for instance. So now what we're finding is, yeah, we could come in and we could do groups, you know, in Black neighborhoods in LA that are built upon some traditional developer-driven practices, or we could do a series of emotional emancipation circles where we could support that work. And emotional emancipation circles is a proven community-defined practice that's been shown to vastly improve the emotional health of Black people who participate in them. Yeah, well, you're, you're talking about trying to build something that's going to be sustainable, not a one-and-done or last for a little while, but something that endures, right. begins to change something fundamentally right. that's going to persist for them. I really like that idea. Yeah. And you don't get those types of changes without close collaboration with the community. You have to do with and not do to. And that's one of the principles that we operate on at CIBHS continually. You don't do to, you have to do with. Yes. And, and, it's a, and that's, that's with communities. That's with people that are living in communities. But that's also a principle that we apply to the types of partnerships that we're involved in, you know, with government entities, you know, with community-based organizations, you know, et cetera. You know, I mean, a, a keynote of how we operate is deeply collaborative. Yeah. You know what you were saying earlier, we were, we were talking about how the relationship is an important function of providing people in their lives with corrective emotional experiences to right. get on a track that allows them to be successful and really attain their potential. They're kind of their God-given design, if you will. Right. And I like that you're kind of emphasizing, again, coming in and working with communities. It's not about doing something too. Right. It's doing something with. I love that phrase. It's, I, I want to come alongside you. And we're going to find the answers there. And we might have some strategies or some, you know, areas to help focus, but we're going to work alongside with you relationally. Right. Then we kind of hand over and they kind of take it from there in a sustainable. This is everyday life for humans. We're we're not just focusing on mental health problems. Good example of this right now is the mass shootings. You know, all of the mass shootings that, you know, that we're having in the United States and the just horrible numbers about gun violence. Now, these are absolutely mental health issues. But when I'm thinking of mental health issues, if I said this to a broad audience, okay, as I say, this is about mental health issues, people's minds immediately go to the people who are perpetrating the violence. That's the mental health issue. And it is sometimes, okay? I don't, I don't believe it is all the time. 
But it's also a mental health issue the way all of us are suffering around this. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in certain communities, a lot more suffering than others. You know, the hypervigilance, you know, the feeling like your life doesn't matter. You know, the feeling like, you know, maybe someone wants to exterminate you, you know, or people who are like you. Being able to live with that on a daily basis, that kind of stress, depression, and impact on lives and communities is real. Those are behavioral health issues. This is a new social determinant now. How do we manage our response to violence? I don't think that's oftentimes named. I think this whole gun-focused piece, I think you're right, right. at the heart of it is a mental health issue. But I don't think many people are talking about the sequelae from this being a mental health issue in a larger way. Because we're walking around vigilant, aren't we? We're walking around traumatized, right. walking around grieving and mourning. Oftentimes we don't recognize the impact of what we carry away from that, the takeaway of that, yep. but it is very real. And it's all of us. I mean, you know, last week, my wife and my daughter and I, I've got a 14 year old daughter, but my wife and my daughter and I had a conversation. You know, there's always a big Juneteenth celebration in Davis, you know, California, right? That's outside of Sacramento. And it's just a wonderful celebration. But even though we decided not to go, we didn't decide not to go for this reason, but we had some other things we were doing with other friends. We had the conversation about being fearful of some crazy person taking the opportunity where there's thousands of black people in one place, you know, doing something heinous. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, that wasn't going to stop us from going. But the thing is, the fact that we had that conversation, that conversation was occurring all over America, I guarantee it. And not just with Black families, you know, with all kinds of families, those conversations are occurring. Those conversations are occurring when people pull up to the curb, the anxious father whose heart rate goes up when he's letting his 12-year-old daughter out of the car and he says, I love you, be careful. He wants to give her the message, don't be anxious, but be aware. Yes. This affects our mental health. And you know, I don't want to get too deep into just focusing on gun violence, but what I'm describing is a principle, you know, around many things that we struggle with, you know, that we struggle with on a daily basis. It's not just about people who are poor and disadvantaged, who have mental health challenges. We all do. And, and to be able to normalize the fact that we want to find pathways through to healing for all of us is what we want resonating with every day with the way we do business. You know, yeah. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more Percy. So let's talk about a little bit, some of the ways you guys do business. You've got a, a, a wide variety of ways to help folks. You have the consultancy, you've got the training, right. you've got the policy implementations, you've got a ton of resources, you guys do evaluations, clinical improvements. Name just a couple that stand out to you for our listeners to understand what you guys are actually doing at kind of at a grassroots level. Well, at, at a grassroots level, one project that we're really proud of, and this is a project that is a combination of being operational and clinical, is that the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health houses its substance use disorder services there. It's not in the mental health department. So it's in public health department, which I think is very interesting because, you know, substance abuse disorders are, they have a public health impact. Okay. So I think it's smart to house it there. Well, anyway, it being Los Angeles County, I mean, LA, you know, LA has got what, 20, you know, 22 million people or something of that nature, huge addiction problems. They have a vast network of community-based organizations 
that they work with to be able to implement substance use disorder services. Now, substance use disorder services in America in general, but definitely in California, it's very different from behavioral health. The system is less robustly funded. You have way less percentage of practitioners who are licensed people. You know, you have a, a much higher percentage of people who are certified, you know, work on a certification basis. You have a lot of mom and pop organizations that have been serving communities for years, you know, faithfully and little to any business infrastructure, you know, having difficulties learning how to attract services and do billing and all of that. So about four years ago, Substance Abuse Prevention and Control in LA, which is what they call, we call them SAPC, they approached us and asked us if we might be able to work with them to improve the operational and clinical capabilities of their network of CBOs. So that's a real interesting project. So we do everything for, you know, we do a lot of handholding with these organizations to help them increase their business acumen and efficiency, you know, from billing to be able to manage facilities, you know, to be able to have strategies for hiring the right people, you know, looking at their service delivery system, the services they offer and how they offer them, you know, facilitating efficiencies as far as that's concerned helping them with their plans to be able to increase the, the racially equitable nature of their staffing, you know, how they engage with communities. So it's a broad program. In fact, we've got seven staff that are stationed, if you will, in Los Angeles, you know, to be able to do that work. And it's a great, great project and far reaching and very broad in its implications. That's yeah. a great example. I would love to hear as you're talking about the various programs and involvements you have. You talked about, you know, data and numbers and making evaluations. What kind of impact are you seeing CIBHS making in the programs that you're involved with? You know, we're seeing a very, very positive impact pretty much across the board in, you know, many of the projects that we work with. We've been able to measure, you know, levels improvement in clinical care with some of the entities that we work with. And it's at a satisfying level because we are a consultancy and we are one point removed from the direct services work, it's not always easy, you know, for us to, you know, to understand exactly what our impact is. Sure. But what we can see is the people that we're working with increasing their impact, yeah. you know, their positive impact and care, you know, we, you know, with the communities that they are working with. That's right. And that's satisfying and, you know, helps us understand how to stay on the right path. We've done distinct evaluations of the impact of several clinical practices over the years, which shows the efficacy and impact of those practices, you know, like functional family therapy, replacement training. We're just now moving into the area to where we're trying to figure out how to do some similar work around community-defined practices. But we also want to be careful and respectful of how that happens. We shouldn't be in the driver's seat on that, okay? Mm -hmm. Communities should be in the driver's seat on that. You know, organizations like the California Reducing Disparities Project, you know, should be on the, you know, in the driver's seat on that. But we're looking to be a more valued partner in that community-defined practice space, you know, across yeah. the state of California and, and outside of California, because we are increasingly doing work outside of California. We, we're involved right now in a business development deal with Via Positiva. Are you familiar with them? No, I'm not. They are a uh, behavioral health consultant organization run by Jim Clarkson for years. He's uh, making a transition to being principal and Sylvia Varela is now the new CEO. 
But Via Positiva, what they do is they're sort of a, they're an organization that's a connecting hub for a lot of different behavioral health entities to be able to engage together in mutually supportive projects. So, so it's been interesting, like right now we're in the process of talking with the Navajo Nation, you know, about the possibility of implementing the strengths model of case management, because, you know, CIBHS has been supporting the implementation of the strengths model now for the, like the last six years. Dr. Rick Gosha, who's the co-creator of the model, was CIBHS executive vice president. Uh, he is actually for about another week, he's embarking on a new adventure to take strengths nationally, but we're still going to be working with him closely to implement strengths in California and beyond. And if you're not familiar with the strengths model of case management, it's one of the two most heavily researched and efficacious case management models existing. The other one is, is you know, Assertive Community Treatment Act. And with a lot of the emerging needs in communities, you know, a lot of organizations, behavioral health organizations are seeing the need to shore up the case management capabilities of a range of staff, because it's not a model that you just train traditional case managers in, might be nurse practitioners, might be promotorists, you know, in medical settings, et cetera, could be a range of staff, even clinicians, because it's training them in the day-to-day, increasing their capability to be collaborative in care and in planning with people so that people in care come away feeling more in control of their lives, more in control of their, you know, the directions that they want to go and, you know, more in control of the collaboration with the government entities and systems and the people that represent them. So in the last five years, I think we've done about 15 to 20 different strengths model projects. And now we're looking at, I, I don't want to jinx it. We've got some new ones coming online that are pretty sizable and, you know, we'll have, I think have some, you know, some pretty profound impact. So stay tuned for that. So people who are listening, who, who want to know, stay, you know, stay tuned and pay attention to CIBHS and you'll see where those pop up. Well, I'd love to have you back yeah. and talk about some of the things that are beginning to take some new hold and to see what new projects are taking shape and what you're kind of excited about then, you know, for those that are listening, I would love folks to be able to have access to you and to our listeners that say, Hey, this might be something that could really complement what we're doing. Or maybe we need some guidance and what we're doing in a larger region. When I I love the idea that you're reaching out outside of California, because I was thinking earlier as you're talking, this is too good just to keep in the California state. So I'm glad you guys are reaching out. But for those that are interested to hear more about you, give us some resources and how they can get a hold of you and uh, CIHP ads. The number one best way is CIBHS.org. Okay. I'll say that again, CIBHS.org, you know, our website. And on the website, you'll be able to find the methods for direct contact for me and some of our other, you know, executive staff that, you know, that's the best way to be able to find us. So the website, which is a really active hub for us is the, is the best way to be able to engage with us. We, you know, we have, we have case studies, you know, detailing the thing, you know, the work that we do. You know, we stay up to date, you know, there on the uh, uh, current projects and who's running those things. We have documentation, for instance, white papers and reports, et cetera. So there's a great deal of information. there. That's really good. You know, we're just about to wind down, but I want to ask, you've been doing this a long time and in a variety of positions. And as I mentioned earlier, everywhere you seem to get planted, you bloom and you grow and you help others bloom and grow as well. I can't think of a more rewarding thing to be involved in in one's life. What is it that gets you up in the morning still to come in and and to do this? 
gets you most excited? What gets me most excited? I, I think really just working with our team here, we've got a fantastic team and it continues to evolve and grow. We just hired a great director of operations, Dr. Iram Santistaban, you know, who is just daily making the infrastructure of CIBHS more effective operationally, making things run smoother, you know, relieving burdens from our internal staff. So, you know, one of the things that gets me up and gets me excited is being a catalyst for making the work experience at this company, you know, better for the people that work here. Yeah. Because, you know, we have an interesting business model. I mean, the consultant business model, there's, you know, you have to be able to work independently. So sometimes it's difficult to remember that you work in an organization, you know, with a bunch of other people, some of whom, you know, are far away from you. you know, we're in Sacramento here. We've got staff in Los Angeles, you know, with COVID, a lot of people started working remotely and, and I have not required people to come back into the office hundred percent. We have a core of people that are working here, but, you know, getting up in the morning and making sure that the, you know, that the experience of working in the company is improving. I mean, we're like any organization. We have our challenges, things we don't do exactly the way we want to do them. The other thing I think is the variety of the work we do keeps me excited. You know, if we were just an organization that just did clinical training, that wouldn't be interesting to me because you, 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 if you, you lose the sort of fertile connectivity to the whole system. And that to me is exciting. It's interesting. You know, so some of the personal projects as the CEO that I'm involved in are very interesting. For right now, you know, California has a large child and youth behavioral health initiative. And I'm, I've been chosen to be one of the people who's on the think tank for how to, you know, to how to be able to manage that in terms of selecting evidence-based community-defined practices to scale, et cetera. That's very interesting to me, you know, to be, to be involved in that. I'm on the, I'm on the board of the California Social Work Education Council with my good friend, Kim Mayer, who's the CEO of, you know, of CalSWEC, as we call it. She used to be an employee here. I knew that there was no way she was going to stay here forever because she's too smart and too capable. I want to <laughs> see people leave and do that. But I, I'm not saying the people who remain behind are not. So that, that sounded weird. But my point being is you're going to lose really great people when they have, you know, opportunities to, to, to bloom sure. and grow. So, you know, these are all things that keep me interested because it's never boring. I mean, it's never a dull moment. This is not a job where I get bored ever. Yeah. Well, as you guys are doing some great things through CIBHS and it's not like you're just a great leader as well. And so committed to those you're helping to the consultancy piece, but also those that you're working alongside. What a, what, what a great life. So I've really, really enjoyed having you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining us and helping us understand what y'all are doing. Yeah. Thank you, Graham. I really appreciate the, the conversation and the invite. Thank you very much. Nice to have you here. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for joining Percy and me today and to remind you that this episode and its resources and all of our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash bht. So check us out at triadhq.com slash bht and explore our archives of podcasts and resources. Thanks again for being with us. I look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.